Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our Body Positive Parenting Primer, which is available for purchase on our website. The Primer is a virtual seminar that you can watch or listen to like a podcast. You'll learn the five fundamentals to truly transform your home environment and set your kids up for body positivity fast. Get the Primer at fullbloomproject.com slash course. That's fullbloomproject.com slash course. The Full Bloom Podcast is also brought to you by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong so that more children can fully bloom. To learn more about how you can support us, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. As a patron of the podcast, you will gain access to the complete A to Z guide to body positive parenting. This interactive and downloadable guide contains a wealth of content to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action. The A to Z guide is an exclusive benefit to our patrons. So to learn more about sponsoring us and to claim the guide, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. Welcome to episode number 31. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Sabrina Strings, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine, who researches how race, sexuality, and class are inscribed on the body. She recently published an amazing book called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. She's also a certified yoga teacher. We spoke with Dr. Strings about her research on the origins of fat phobia and the thin ideal, why these phenomena have always been tied to race, and why the assumed connection between weight and health is built on a really shaky foundation. We also discussed the origin of the, quote, obesity science, the BMI scale, when and why the medical establishment became concerned about body weight in the first place, weight stigma, and so much more. It's a wonderful episode. Sabrina, welcome to the Full Bloom podcast. It's great to be on with you. Can you start just by telling us and our audience about who you are and what brought you to or influenced your research on the intersection between race, embodiment, and fat phobia? Well, I'm a native Californian, and I was very close to my grandmother growing up. And my grandmother was not a native Californian. She actually came to California in 1960 uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, as part of the Great Migration. And once she arrived in California, she noticed that there seemed to be this trend of white women on diets. Because as you might imagine, in rural Georgia in 1960, there weren't a whole lot of black people dieting. So she thought, why are white women on diets? And then when I came of, well, not exactly of age, but when I was a teenager in the 1990s, she would often ask me, 
like, why are white women dying to be thin? Like, what can explain this? And my response as a teenager was, I don't know, can I get a cupcake? You know. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until about 10 years later that I was an adult at this time. And I was in 2003 working at an HIV medication adherence clinic in the predominantly black neighborhood of San Francisco, Bayview Hunters Point. And there were two women there, one black and one Latinx who I interviewed about their medication adherence. You know, why weren't they taking their meds? And each of them said to me that they were afraid of gaining weight. And I thought, this is incredible. The stakes are life and death. Mm. And at that time, I started to reflect on the many conversations I had with my grandmother. And it occurred to me that I wanted to research this more thoroughly because it seemed as if this was a phenomenon that not very many people had examined in terms of its origins. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for and your grandmother for <laughs> planting the seeds of this question, which you took. You researched this so deeply. Um, and the reason why I know that is because I've read your book, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, which was pretty recently published, right? Yes, in May. Yes. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and you really, really investigate this question, which I know from doing this podcast and from doing the work that I do, that there's a big question, like, where did this come from? Why is it this is this is happening? And um, there is thin ideal, there is weight stigma, there is fat phobia, but why? And your investigation you walk us through how the thin ideal and fat phobia, they've always been tied to race. And I'm wondering if you could just take our listeners on an abridged walk down that path that you present so deeply in this book. Absolutely. So many of your listeners are, I'm sure, are familiar with the work of Peter Paul Rubens or Titian or Botticelli, um, mm -hmm. all of the people, the famous painters from the Renaissance and then also the Baroque era who would paint white women often as voluptuous and as the epitome of beauty. And they may also be familiar with more contemporary artists like Gainsborough, who was painting in the tail end of the Enlightenment, uh, late 18th century, in which the women were much more slender. And so I thought when I decided to, to turn this, what was originally my dissertation into a book, that I wanted to go back to that particular transition. What led to so many artists transitioning their ideal from more curvaceous and fleshy to svelte? Mm. And in my investigation, it wasn't too long when I was looking at artist renderings, also um, philosophical and artistic treatises, as well as women's magazines that I started to notice a very clear racialized discourse. So we think about someone like Peter Paul Rubens. Um, we know many of his work, Venus in Front of the Mirror, um, The Three Graces, but we don't know that he kept journals about what constituted beauty. And what he said at that time was that beauty involves skin that's white as snow. And he mm -hmm. also described the more inferior practices in his mind of people from different parts of the world. And so these were some of the first inklings for me that this transition from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment effectively, from a more curvaceous ideal to a slender ideal, and centrally involved race. Mm. I think that we've been really been missing from our podcast the conversation, this conversation, the, the one that connects weight stigma 
and talks about the way it intersects with other forms of discrimination and oppression and privilege. And I think it would just be helpful for us and our listeners just to hear you discuss the main takeaways that you found in your research about how fat phobia has been racialized and just examples of how that connection has evolved and still exists today. I'd love to hear kind of your what you know about the past, but then also what does the connection between fat phobia and racism look like in 2019? So it's a big question, but whatever you got, we will take. Okay. <laughs> the main takeaway of the book is that fat phobia is not rooted in health concerns. Instead, it's rooted in the triangle slave trade and the rise of Protestantism. Because with the slave trade, what we started to see was the greater consideration um, of, you know, black women in terms of sort of like an aesthetic ideal, romantic or beauty ideals, such that just before the time of Rubens painting, there was this very clear way in which artists believe, oh, actually, black women's figures are just as attractive as white women's figures, and we will actually have them presented side by side as beautiful, voluptuous women. But as the slave trade progressed, new race science suggested that, in fact, black people are greedy. They're sensuous in general. Black people enjoy sex. They enjoy food. And because of that, they are naturally fat. What we started to see over time was that representations of black women changed from being curvaceous and attractive to what was considered overly fat and grotesque. Mm. Around about the same time period, so around about the 18th century, we also have the spread of Protestantism in places like England, where there was a new rationale that was suggesting to women in particular that it would be important for them to eat right for God. And the way that you show that you've eaten correctly for the Lord is by maintaining a slender physique. And in the United States, these two rationales, which had been circulating in various parts of Europe, came together under one coherent narrative to suggest that being fat is black and sinful. And it wasn't until about, mm, I want to say, 70 years after this was very clearly an ideal burgeoning in the United States, especially in women's magazines where it was being discussed, that the medical establishment started to take up these concerns of, quote, excess fat tissue. So that's the first part of your question, which mm -hmm. is, like, if it's not rooted in medical concerns, where does it come from? But in terms of your second question about how does this impact us today, when we look at the so-called obesity science, what we will recognize is that, first of all, as articulated by some of the earliest people trying to get this on the agenda for the medical community, that the standard that we're using in order to determine obesity, which involves having a body mass index of 30 or greater, is arbitrary. There was not a whole lot of scientific investigation that was done prior to its institution as a standard. So a lot of the studies that we're all familiar with came after it was already identified as the standard for obesity. So consider that and how that's actually reverse science or pseudoscience. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that once BMI was instituted, what they noticed was that black women had the highest BMIs. And so then black women were presented as a threat to the public health. Mm. Yeah. And so in a certain way, it's almost you know, seemingly un unintentional that this arbitrary standard was instituted and then black women became the targets of this anti-fat rhetoric. But if you know the long history, 
you understand that it's just the latest innovation of black women being the targets of anti-fat rhetoric. Yeah, it's it's so old and just continuously kind of reinforced in ways that that someone can can stand behind more easily than maybe where it really comes from, which is more challenging, I think, for people to sit with than to say, oh, it's unhealthy, you know? And I, I think we've, in our podcast last season, we really came up with this primary issue of this word healthy is is used as a proxy to really oppress people. And we're really trying to focus on that this season and how do we stop using that word so much to mean so many different things that are actually oppressive and stigmatizing and how do we actually let bodies be healthy at every size and start from that assumption that bodies can be healthy from every size and race and the way that you answer that question, the, con- the connection between how you just how it is today, it really comes out in that, so to speak, obesity epidemic and how oppressive that is for for black women right now. Yeah. And really for all Americans mm-hmm. in a particular way, because we're all being told that it's absolutely in a, improper and unhealthy for us to go past a particular body mass index. And so all of us have to constantly be vigilant to keep our body mass indices down in order not to be the the targets of this medical campaign. And one of the things that I realized as a result of writing this book and, and talking to many different people who've been impacted by fat stigma is that it's actually contributing in a very clear and serious way to worse health outcomes for fat people. And yeah. it's, Yeah, because not only are people feeling depressed over being stigmatized, which is obviously contributing to poorer health outcomes, including mental health outcomes, but also people are afraid to go to the doctor because they are considered obese and they don't want to be told that the solution to all of their problems is weight loss. When we know, first of all, that weight loss doesn't work. I mean, people either can't lose weight or they can lose weight, but not keep it off because it's not what their bodies are used to. And then also, secondly, when people start doing this type of weight cycling where they're losing weight and gaining weight, it actually leads to worse health outcomes. So in a panoply of ways, we can see how the phobia surrounding fatness that exists within this obesity epidemic discourse is leading to very serious negative health effects for fat people. Yeah. And for kids in bigger bodies. And I know that, you know, we as we said in our questions, one of our missions here at the Full Bloom podcast, Full Bloom Project, is to promote something that we're calling body positive parenting. Um, And so our core question for today, it's how does this intersection right between fat phobia and racism impact young people as they grow and how might it prevent them from being able to bloom in full? You know, second wave feminists, um, (laughs) for the extent to which they are critiqued, you know, but nevertheless, we can understand that they did offer some very helpful insights because since at least the 1980s, we have known that when we encourage children from a young age to adopt dieting practices for the express purpose of being a particular size, it leads to eating disorders. And eating disorders can be hugely detrimental. And one of the things I like to point out to people is that while obesity is not listed as a cause of death on death certificates. Anorexia is. 
And we know that a lot of children become anorexic, become bulimic, an increasing number of boys are also experiencing these types of eating disorders. They often are learning these types of negative relationships to food through their parents and other family members. And so it's so important to be able to communicate to children that they can eat healthy, that they can exercise, that they can drink water, get enough sleep. And that they can do what is effectively good for their bodies without having to think about maintaining a particular size. Because once they start being concerned about the size that they need to be, then we're introducing additional variables that will actually hurt them in the long run. Yeah. For parents listening who, you know, who have children of color that are going to be raised in this medical system right now that is inherently stigmatizing, at least right now. Would you say their children are more vulnerable to stigma around their body size? And what might be protective as a parent to do to manage the system that is not set up to really support that child's health? I often think that it will be important for parents, for fat activists, for straight size allies, people who are deeply invested in this issue to start thinking about the ways that they can contact their medical practitioners, um, the various local institutions of public health, people who are actually responsible for administering healthcare, and let them know that they want an end to the utilization of BMI. This doesn't mean that fat phobia will go away because we stop using BMI, but it would be a critical first step in forcing people uh, in the medical community who are responsible for the care of our bodies to start thinking about the ways in which they can approach people of different sizes and offer them care in ways that do not cause harm in the end. Right? And we think about like the Hippocratic Oath that medical professionals have to take, which says, effectively, do no harm. But we know that telling people to maintain a certain weight is doing harm. So to me, one thing that like, interested parties could do, parents, activists, et cetera, is start thinking about the ways in which you can engage with the medical community to make them move away from this harmful standard. Mm-hmm. I know you've talked about this a lot. When I was listening to the, the Christy Harrison podcast that you did with her, there was something that you said, which was when I used to stand in front of people and say, weight loss is is a harmful, it's harmful to give that prescription, basically, to people, they would give you a hard time. Um, and now it it's changed a little bit. And I'm just wondering if you can, to our listeners, make that argument, which is weight loss does harm, prescribing weight loss does harm. If you could share how you put that, I would love to hear it. Even within the medical community, researchers have shown that when people are told to lose weight, um, they either cannot lose weight, and which leads to a form of depression, or they feel stigmatized and are perhaps unwilling to go back to the doctor, or sometimes they can lose weight. And what they find is that their weight comes off, but then it comes back. And then they're in this process of weight cycling that I mentioned earlier. So it's very clear in the medical literature that weight loss might reduce some of the um, various indices that researchers are looking for for a short period of time. But over time, it leads to poorer health outcomes. It's, to me, staggering 
that so many medical professionals have looked at this and identified this for so long, but they still continue to prescribe weight loss. And part of it has to do with the lobbying of um, medical professionals that Natalie Boero uh, identifies in her book, Killer Fat, that has long been going on from the industry's um, heavy hitters, including uh, Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and some of the top names that are familiar. So when we have this multi-billion dollar industry set up around weight loss, we can find that it becomes easy and lucrative for those individuals who are so invested to prescribe it to patients, even if it leads to harm in the long run. I've found myself saying recently, the FDA would never approve weight loss as a prescription drug if it was a prescription drug. It has a 5% chance of working, from what I understand from the literature. Like, They would never allow a doctor to prescribe that. But because it's not set up in that way, doctors prescribe it all the time. In fact, doctors prescribe it to children, which to me is just the most upsetting thing. I, I, I have clients come in all the time who that was the first onset of their eating disorder was a, a doctor prescribing weight loss to a child who's 10 and the family being up, upset that, the, that that it's not working and what's wrong with the child and the child, you know, it just starts so early. And I want to help parents, our listeners, and, and hopefully as, as many listeners as we can get to really be more equipped to challenge a doctor when they give this prescription and to anyone. Like, how do we challenge that? How do we support people, individuals, to to fight that fight? This is why I think it's important for us to think about the components of a movement, because it's very difficult for you as one individual who is going to a doctor and seeking their medical advice. I mean, really, that's why you're there to have them give you a prescription. And then you say, no, I think that's incorrect. <laughs> it's really hard to do. It's hard to do. And probably what will happen is that they will allow you to leave and you will have to fend for yourself. I mean, there's there's really no incentive for them to listen to you as an individual. But if a group of like-minded persons to um, the FDA or to Congress or some other vehicle that is responsible for determining how it is that we are offering solutions to health problems, then I think that we could have a greater impact. I don't think that this is something that people can manage individually. Mm -hmm. We have to get macro. And we are going to talk more about that on the podcast this season, about um, just ways to become parent citizens and sort of how to, how to kind of join together to, make, you know, join the movement, like you're saying. I have a question, Sabrina, and it's not one that we shared in the, the write-up, so forgive me. But here's my question, and I think it's kind of all of these things come together in it. I find that, and I want to be, I don't want to be disrespectful of any anyone that I've had the privilege of working with, but I do find that I work a lot with, you know, I, my, my practice is in New York City, and I work a lot with parents that have, you know, very progressive mindsets about politics and, you know, parenting styles and would probably consider themselves very inclusive and liberal. And I am inclined to think that some of these parents, the ones that might identify as progressive in many ways, 
and yet still, because they're part of diet culture just like the rest of us, have high levels of internalized weight stigma. I'm inclined to think that if they could start to see how not so progressive those ideas are, right, about kind of wanting to conform to a certain body type that actually is very, in many ways, anti-black, as I hear you saying, you know, and, and, and what I've read in your book. I suspect that, that it's, it's impactful to kind of create some dissonance for people to say, okay, here you are saying that you're a progressive, inclusive person, and yet there's an inconsistency here, right? And I guess my question, and I'm kind of thinking about it on the spot, but I'm just wondering, like, how might we bring this kind of component in, not, you know, like a way to so just to bludgeon someone over the head with it, you know, but to say, like, if your values are inclusive and progressive, what do you make of this? I, I guess I'm wondering, how do we bring them along and help people see that you can't really fully be an inclusive person and a progressive person if actually you you have beliefs that are still kind of right they're they're quite oppressive beliefs do you know what i'm going with this i, I think so and you know as far as i'm aware uh people progressive people in particular still love nate silver um and 538 and so, you know, despite whatever happened with the 2016 elections, and I think that what we could do is try to get some of these high profile individuals like Nate Silver, who has on his blog talked about how BMI is completely useless. Mm -hmm. It would be important for us to, first of all, collect the resources such as this, like look at all of these journalists and uh, public health scholars who are now coming out and showing specifically how BMI is a problem. There's another scholar at UCLA, uh, A. Janet Tomiyama. Who, she, she is actually in the Department of Public Health there, or the School of Public Health there, rather. And she has been doing this work for years. And so there's a number of people who are now coming out and showing, hey, this is a flawed measure. And so if we can actually be able to point people who identify as progressive to these resources, they might start to rethink, oh, okay, well, I say I'm doing this for health reasons, but in fact, the standard that I'm being given is not rooted in medical science um, so much as the ideas of this one man who was advocating for them, <laughs> who I talk about in my book. Mm -hmm. um, so I probably can start to let go of the notion that a person's health can be determined by their weight. So just off the cuff, I think that's one good place to start is being able to identify the resources that you can give to so-called progressive people to show them that the relationship that you think exists between weight and health is actually something that was manufactured by mm -hmm. one man <laughs> yeah. in the 1970s. And how about to sort of bring up the racist roots of all this. I mean, I'm, I, it's such a sensitive topic and it's, you know, it doesn't go very far if you accuse someone of being racist, you know, like that doesn't really work. And they're not, they, they just, maybe people don't know. They don't, they don't know what they don't know. And this idea, like when, when we, we, we dove into the thin ideal last season on our podcast episode from a different perspective, we spoke with one of the founder, one of the creators of the body project and, you know, the scientist that has really studied that, but you bring a very different lens to look at the thin ideal, I think even more critically, and you are calling out, you know, the racist roots of it. And 
I guess I'm wondering, like, what is the most effective way to talk about this? I mean, I'm I'm not afraid to say, hey, read read Sabrina Strings book. It's fantastic. I'm not opposed to that. But I'm I'm wondering from a really practical communication perspective as a clinician or just even in like, you know, among friends. Right. Like what is the, the most effective way to say, like, hey, you know, this ideal that we kick around it's like it's got some racist roots here i don't know is that is like is that good enough or is there a more effective way i guess that's kind of what i'm wondering um i think that you touched on something important when you said that telling people that something is racist isn't always the best way which is one of the reasons why in this conversation i've been trying to point to critiquing their implied notion that there's this relationship between fat and health, such that if a person is, quote, too fat, they are unhealthy. Um, so I think beginning there is an important entryway because people like to hold on to some other rationale. What we see in American culture all the time is that something could have racist roots, but if you point it out, people will say, oh, well, that's not why I'm doing it, or that's not what I meant. Like what I right. meant was this other thing. Of course, right. what they mean supposedly is the health relationship. So I think critiquing the health relationship first is important. And then if people are open and willing, then giving them some of the historical information like, okay, well, if it's not health, if they can accept that the health foundation is shaky, (laughs) if it's not that, then what is it? And that's the moment in which we can start to say, oh, actually, if you look at the data, you can see how race science was integral to the propagation of fat phobia in the Western world. And here's some evidence of that. Mm-hmm. So, yes. I mean, to me, it has to be a layered approach. And starting with, you know, the problem of racism is, in America at least, not usually the most effective way. Yeah, absolutely. The health question is the one that most people hide their fat phobia behind. And when you can unpack that, and I I think unpacking it, I think we've been trying to do that. Mm -hmm. Particularly, we've been speaking a little bit more, and I I know that you speak too, that that really working on unpacking that succinctly and with evidence is an important place to mm-hmm. to go. I, what has it been like in your experience to unpack that in, in front of audiences? Um, lately, people have been very receptive as it pertains to that, because in years past, people were absolutely unwilling to hear this. And actually, I was thinking about conversations that I had in graduate school with otherwise intelligent people that I'm not attempting to knock for their general level of engagement with politics and social issues. But many people would say things to me like, I can look at a fat person and know they're unhealthy. And I remember one conversation like that in which I said to this person directly, what you just articulated is eugenics. Um, Mm -hmm. We cannot look at a person and know their health status. That's preposterous. So what we really have to focus on is the fact that we are moving away from what was like the height of the obesity epidemic discourse when we were really steeped in it, which to me was, you know, like the early 2000s, maybe up to about 2013. We're in a new moment now, um, especially with the rise of resources like Twitter, where there are so many people who are fat activists like Linda Bacon or so many other individuals who are Clearly, people who are scholars of public health who are talking about this in ways that may have been undermined or suppressed um, prior to the rise of these social media tools, now is a moment in which more people are willing to say, oh, there's a plurality of voices on this topic. 
And not everyone is suggesting that being a particular weight leads to death. People are showing that there are many different possibilities for all different types of weights. And the real question is, how do we take care of our bodies? Yes. So uh, mindful of time and uh, your time and also our listeners' time, because our listeners are busy parents often on the run. So just to conclude, we'd love to hear your answer to our, our question, which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to fight fat phobia and help their children of, you know, of all colors fully bloom? I would say that it's important for parents to be invested in their children's health by trying to give them fresh produce, um, you know, let them get enough sleep, let them get enough physical activity, but not trying to communicate to them that they need to look a particular way. That is the part that ends up being detrimental. If you love your kids, then it shouldn't matter what they look like. And you can help them to think about how to eat right for their bodies and how to move their bodies and get enough water and avoid unhealthy prepackaged meals without trying to tell them that what will happen to them that's so terrible is that they will end up being a weight that many people have deemed to be inappropriate. Instead, we can let go of all of the weight-based conversations and simply focused on how do we best maintain the bodies that we've been given. Yeah, so really separating health from weight. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, let's leave it there. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we'll be sure to include on our website your book and any other resources that you want to share with our listeners. Okay. Thank you so much. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during the episode, so please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast and visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm -hmm.